Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Now listen up, everybody. I know a lot of you would like us to start this podcast off nice and easy. And I would love to do that for you. There's just one thing, though. We never, ever do this podcast nice and easy. We like to do this podcast nice and rough. That's just how we do. Proud Maddie, which is a name you can call me from now on. Though my name really is Matt Rogers, the host of this podcast, the HBO Max Movie Club. And forgive me for being all in my Tina zone right now, but I just watched the incredible documentary feature film, Tina, streaming now on HBO Max. And I am truly in the spirit of this incredible woman, performer, and icon, the one and only legend, Tina Turner, one of the best ever. If you want to improve your life, you can make your way over to the HBO Max right now and click play on this one, the acclaimed documentary by Daniel Lindsay and TJ Martin that was released last year on March 27th, 2021 and chronicles the incredible career, difficult personal life, triumphant comebacks, and overall kick-ass life of Tina Turner. This film holds a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes and received great critical acclaim when it was released. It was nominated for three Emmy Awards, Outstanding Documentary, Outstanding Direction of a Documentary, and Outstanding Sound. Not only does this doc feature first-person testimony from Tina herself, but you know you made it when the talking heads wanting to speak on your story and comment on your legacy are Angela Bassett, who, of course, was Oscar-nominated for her amazing performance as Tina in the film What's Love Got to Do With It, as well as Oprah Winfrey herself. Yes, Tina's friend, Oprah Winfrey. Now, if you're unaware of Tina Turner, first of all, what... And second of all, here's a quick fill-in for you so you're not humiliated when someone turns to you at the next social event and asks you your favorite Tina song. Mine, by the way, is Private Dancer, but I also love Goldeneye and, of course, What's Love Got to Do With It. And I also love the best. Anyway, Tina is an icon of rock and roll. She's a rock and roll Hall of Famer who started her career as one half of Ike and Tina Turner. Ike, who was like an older brother figure of then-Anna Mae Bullock, created the persona Tina Turner as a stage name and made anime, who became Tina, the face of his band. He was the music and the producer, and Tina was the face and the performer and the energy. After years of great success and significant physical, emotional, and professional abuse after they became married, eventually Tina left Ike and over the years built herself into a worldwide superstar, filling stadiums, winning Grammys, starring in films and stepping into her destiny as one of music's greatest and most recognizable icons. Hers is a truly a story of rags to riches. There are so many highs and lows in the journey of her life, but ultimately some people just cannot be stopped. 
Today, we're so lucky to have Ronald Young Jr. of the HBO Max Docs Club here to talk with us about this amazing doc and legendary musician. You've absolutely got to check out the HBO Docs Club if you can. And make sure you go through everything that HBO Max has to offer when it comes to documentaries. It's truly an embarrassment of riches on the platform. When I knew I was going to be doing a documentary episode and I saw Tina, I just had to revisit this one because I loved it so much when it came out. But just know that this is an endorsement of all these great documentaries. I especially love ones about musicians and music stars. So this one appealed to me, but there are tons. All right, everyone, snuggle up because Ronald Young Jr. joins me to talk Tina right now. And what do we have here? It's the host of the HBO Docs Club, Ronald Young Jr. Thank you so much for being here, Boo. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I have to ask you right off the top, just so we can jump right into the waters of Tina. What's your favorite Tina? It's funny because I respect the Tina of the 80s and 90s probably the most. Yes. But I enjoy the Tina of the 60s and 70s probably the most with where she's dancing she's going hard she has like a team of dancers behind mm-hmm. her uh granted there's ike looming in the corner so i don't like yeah that. it's a complicated issue yeah 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 it feels like i don't know i don't know how much to like her at that point <laughs> exactly well you know what's crazy is it's like you really see the blueprint for so what so many people do now in those old tina performances but it is there is like there's like this trauma hanging around it and it's almost like this like way this the way that like performance like seemed to be drilled into her was like literally drilled into her in many ways like you find out about the perfectionism like really this wasn't just physically and emotionally abusive it was also professionally abusive in many ways and so you do see that machine that she was and we know she's the blueprint you know in in what she's doing there but there's also so much trauma in in that experience and in that existence at that time which I think makes the documentary a tough watch, but also an important watch to really understand who this person is. I agree. I think there's something to be said, and she even speaks to that a bit, saying that like the way Ike would train them kind of prepared her for the future and being able to adapt to things very quickly. Right. And you see that moving on mm-hmm. as we get into the 70s and 80s, Tina, you kind of see the way that she's drilling the band and the people behind her, maybe not as abusive or not abusive at all in some ways, but mm-hmm. just kind of being that perfectionist. But I mean, Beyonce's a perfectionist, you know what I mean? At some point, you got to say, and, and you know, it's it's weird because you have to walk a line to say that abuse is never okay. Right. But whenever you see uh, someone that's able to somehow make a switch in their minds and turn it into a weapon rather than just purely a source of trauma, as we know it'll always be a source of trauma, mm-hmm. but somehow weaponize it to their advantage, like there's something powerful about that. Yeah. The simple way to say it is you take your broken heart or whatever's been broken about you and you make it into art or whatever it is that's going to save you. Because, I mean, exactly. you see that she is able to really embody strength. You do forget, too, that she was older by the time she yeah. really popped off in the 80s. By the time the 90s yeah. rolls around, you know, and she's like really in it and very established, she's 50. And so this is another thing about it, which is, you know, it was years and decades of, you know, she had been Tina, 
But then Tina yeah. went away. Tina was doing cabaret. Tina was doing Vegas. Tina was, you know, singing yeah. backup for, on the Brady Bunch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Olivia Newton John and doing all these things yeah. and really just trying to make checks, which also yeah. does that that need that needs to clock in and keep clocking in and not necessarily really be making money, but rather be surviving. Like your performance yeah. as survival, all of this. And the Ike stuff like readies her to be able to step into her new era in this mid 80s period with the release of Private Dancer in 84, which was her real breakthrough, and then become this global phenomenon. But there is something to be said about, you know, the way that that person earns credibility and the way that that person is able to really step into that iconography and that story is to have been through shit. Yeah. And I think you've boiled down what makes this documentary so good. Mm-hmm. And and that is, for me, I was born in 84. I'm 38 years old. I was born in 84. By the time I got here, Tina was already killing it. Mm-hmm. And by the time the, the uh, What's Love Got to Do With It movie comes out, we have Angela Bassett, I find out that there's abuse. But at that time, I'm like 9, 10 years old. I don't know what any of these, the implications of these are. I just know that Tina Turner is a star and she sings and she wears short dresses. That's all I knew of her. Right. What this documentary does well is thread the needle between Ike and Turner, which is a a period of Tina that everyone, Ike and Tina Turner, Mm -hmm. which is a period of Tina Turner that a lot of people knew. And Tina Turner, as we know her today, this rock star that is the only, only person that I knew. And thinking about the work that it took for her in that little in-between time to basically beg for a career and not only get a career, but become a megastar. Right. Like actually selling out the stadiums and doing the things that she wanted to do from the very beginning. I think this documentary kind of lays it out in a way where I'm sitting there and it just clicks for me. I, 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 was, I was sitting there and I just remember thinking, this is incredible. And like you said, for her to be doing this in her 40s, in her 50s and having this type of stardom it just bucks an entire system that tells you that after 30 you are dead you are a dead person after 30 give it up don't even try like you're supposed to be in the suburbs you know you you know it's it's funny (laughs) i was thinking in watching her like in her clearly just deck any any of her peers or anyone younger than her in terms of like being able to perform being able to sing being able to give the live experience and i was thinking what a shame that it feels like now this might not be be possible. N- yeah. Not, not only because, you know, we just don't have a monoculture like that really. Now we're like, it happens for a few people, but the stadiums are not being newly filled by new people in the same way. Yes. And also yes. by a woman in her 50s, you know, who had fans from 16 to, you know, much, much older because she yes. made young people feel excited to be empowered and emboldened and adult. And like her content was very adult. I mean, she's the private dancer. You know, she tells the story of, you know, this woman who does what she needs to do to get by, but still has dignity. Like it's this very adult story, but she had young yes. fans because she was a pop star. And then you see, um, especially in the documentary, older people say she makes me feel young again, feel virile yeah. again, feel like I have the energy to go out in there and sweat and be unapologetically physical and sexual. Yeah. And she really was this, you know, comet uh, that you have to look up from your position, whoever you are, whatever age you are, to simply watch her because she's once in a lifetime. And you just yes. really realize in watching this, A, how rare that was, and B, what a rare time that was, the time and place that allowed her to be the supernova Tina. 
Yeah. Like, I logically know what you're saying is true. Right. I would love to see it again, though. I would love to see, you I know, and, and the only thing I think I have to compare it to is anytime I see a person over at my age or older start making it on TikTok. Yeah. Like, start just going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. TikTok if is leveling start... the playing field in many ways. Exactly. And Tina yeah, would crush on TikTok. She would kill it. She, she would kill it. She would have one, one of her sons <laughs> helping her film it, and she would be killing it right now on TikTok exactly. if she wanted to. Exactly. So. You know, uh, and something that, you know, I think, uh, especially in this age of documentaries about uh, rock musicians, pop stars, um, especially ones that have been through very difficult things. And obviously, you know, Tina endeavors to tell a life story, not just, you know, the story of a specific concert tour or an album release. You know, Tina is the life story of this woman, this icon. And something that I was struck by in watching this documentary is that one of the themes is her hesitance to relive her life. Because mm -hmm. there is a necessity for people to understand and to comprehend someone's complete story when they feel like they are entitled to that story because this person is a big star. And you get the sense that not only was she telling the story because she wanted to put it in her past, but also there was a necessity in telling her story because with, as someone with that platform, you do want to empower others. However, it feels like the number one narrative when it comes to Tina sharing and reliving her trauma and her story, especially as it pertains to Ike, she doesn't really want to get into it. But by nature of being who she is and needing to tell the story and what's love got to do with it, the film being a major footnote in her narrative because it was when people finally understood the circumstances of her rise, fall, and then rise again. And this documentary, it seems like though the doc is acknowledging her reluctance to and, you know, discomfort with talking about and reliving her past, still we do that. And I just wanted to know if you could speak to that in terms of documentary in general, just like it is uplifting to tell a story, but it's very painful. I'll talk to both. One, what, what Tina does well and what documentary does well. Mm -hmm. I think what this documentary does well is it puts in perspective the place of that story. Because when the minute that you find out that there's going to be a Tina documentary, all of us who know any portion of Tina Turner's story are expecting to hear about the abuse. We're expecting to hear about that period of her, in her life. Mm -hmm. And what this documentary, I think, does well is immediately in the beginning, it talks about, it says, hey, that's in the story. And it starts with the journalist who tells the story from People magazine. And mm -hmm. it says, we had to tell the, this is when she actually opened up and told this story. Then as the documentary unfolds, we hear Tina herself basically say, I'm telling this story because so many people kept asking me about where Ike was and I needed to tell them, hey, Ike sucks. Mm -hmm. And here's why, you know what I mean? And this is why I don't mess with them anymore. And it kind of draws a line right there between her career with Ike and her career post Ike. And I think if you can use the beats of a story, because I think what all of us know is anyone who suffered trauma knows that that trauma may inform your personality. It may inform who you are going forward, it may inform parts of like a, a larger portion of your personality and who you are, but it's not the entire story. Yeah. And I think 
That's what documentaries should be doing when they pick up these stories, especially of trauma. They should be able to use the tr- use that traumatic story to kind of point to the larger tale, say like, this is a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. Right. Because I think as humans, we we tend to try to make the trauma the whole puzzle. Of course. It seems like it's a way to connect, but also mm-hmm. we have to be honest, like there is a degree of navel gazing here. And like when someone yes. is, that's what trauma porn is. I mean, we yes. want to see the darker sides of humanity the same way we want to experience the lighter sides of humanity. We just don't want to experience them the same way. You know what I mean? Agreed. Like we can always yep. listen to her music. We can always watch her music videos. We can experience her in her glory and the way that she's presented as the star. But then when it comes to the trauma, Trauma, only she has to actually feel that again. Yes. And so we don't actually feel that. We can be sympathetic. We can say we've gone through something similar. We can pretend to have gone through something similar, but we can never feel it again. We can never be triggered by it again. And so I actually wondered, you know, they show that scene with the press conference at Venice Film Festival when they're premiering What's Love Got to Do With It? And Tina's asked the question of, have you watched the film and what do you think of the film? And she doesn't even just say, no, I haven't seen it yet, but tonight's the night. She doesn't stop there. She sticks to her guns and she says the narrative she's been saying. Actually, I'm not even really that happy this exists. I feel like it has to exist because people won't shut up about it, but I'm not going to watch it because it's painful for me Period. And then they cut to Angela Bassett, all smiles, (laughs) like the actress promoting the movie, you know, huge moment in her career. But you do understand even she as the actress who's had to portray it. And she, to me, seems like one of the most committed actresses out there. And this, of course, revolutionized her career. Must understand that to some degree, because... I don't know if, if you know the listeners of this podcast have seen what's left got to do with it, but even that can barely broach like the real truth of what it is, and that's really hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference in the way that what's love got to do with it addresses this trauma right. versus the way Tina, the documentary, addresses this trauma. Mm-hmm. We can go into that and talk about what Hollywood does and right. what trauma porn is and what that looks like. But I, I, you're right that in terms of this documentary. Tina saying that, saying like, no, I'm not watching this. Why would I watch this? Yeah. Like, what, what do you think this is a, all of y'all are going to feel something different than what I'm going to feel when exactly. I watch this. Because y'all, y'all are going to see, uh, like basically reenactments of the worst parts of my life. When I watch this, it's going to trigger the actual memories of the real trauma mm-hmm. that I was in. And logically, like, even as she said that, I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, no, wait, no, of course she wouldn't watch this. Why would she ever watch this? That doesn't make sense. But to to me, the the consummate professional that she is, is for her to feel those feelings. And and I don't fault any artist that says, no, I don't want to touch this. No, you can't ever make a movie about it. Mm -hmm. No, I won't do any interviews. For her to feel those feelings and still turn around and produce the movie, to mm-hmm. do the interviews, any of that stuff, it, it really, to me, is a mark of how strong she is and how resilient she is, even though she shouldn't have to be. You right, know? right, absolutely. It's so interesting, like, when you actually consider, because I think sometimes we as consumers and we as fans, we think, you know, these people who are, especially musicians, 
who are mm-hmm. m- known for sharing that pain and like helping everyone, like really um, allowing you to feel your feelings because the music will heighten all the emotions. But then mm-hmm. to also understand and see them as the individual, as the person, as the human being, and mm-hmm. understand that surrounding them are other human beings. So when someone goes through a divorce, an abusive situation, a rebirth, anything, the sharing of that doesn't just affect that person, it affects of people around them. So when she yes. comes forward and tell, tells a story about Ike and tells a story about her, she's also telling a, a story about someone's father. She's telling mm-hmm. a story about, you know, and, and, and whatever he may mean to so many people. So, and especially being a woman, like, which yeah. I almost feel like, like this documentary, probably because it didn't really need to, because it is or it is pretty clear or should be implicitly clear to everyone, to be a woman saying this about a man, especially in the early 80s. I yes, mean, like yes. to be a black woman saying this about a man in the in the early 80s. Like this is really th- this is a risk. It's a major risk, not just only stepping out on your own, not just only saying I want to be one of music's greatest stars and like putting all my chips on the line on that, but also saying, hey, an image that you may have of me that's important to you, I'm going to shatter, not just yeah. for you, but for people close to me. So this is how this is like true boldness, and I'm saying it to you, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, and, then here, yeah. Yeah, and yet here we are, you know. It- and, you know, it's funny while you were talking, the other part that gets me and this isn't in the documentary, but her being a black woman and yeah. him being a black man and the tendency of black women to want to protect black men right. and her knowing what telling this story would do to the image of Ike Turner. Like mm-hmm. who would want to work with him again? Who would want to ever be involved in all of that again? What was she going to do to his career? Yeah. She spent a lot of time protecting his career. She spent a lot of time at the very beginning saying, I'm never going to leave you like everyone yeah. else did. So their relationship is going to be completely different, especially since she was his wife, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that he was womanizing and abusing mm-hmm. and her to still have the tendency to say, Telling this can be damaging to him, and also I don't want to relive it. Is it's just as you were talking, I just thought about that, and it's it's a common refrain that we've heard from Black women. Right. So it kind of makes it even more powerful that she does decide to tell it because it, it was important to be told. Um, but again, we have no right to this. We have no right to know this, and we have no right for her to tell us this. Yeah, it really actually this documentary actually because it's told in five acts. It actually spoke to another documentary that I love on HBO Max, which is Jane Fonda in five acts, and it's very interesting how. The first four chapters of Jane's story are all named after the husbands that she had because the narrative for her in her life was she was a she was chameleonic with the men that she was with because, you know, of her own, you know, very difficult experience with her father and how she always wanted to see herself through the lens of the male gaze no matter what that was, it feels like if you're to compare the two, maybe because this the abuse was so intense that Tina was just like totally uninterested in being defined by not just men, but the male gaze in general. She was a, yes. who she becomes is, is a, a figure that is yes, sexualized and yes, it is passionate, but it's also empowering. And you yes. you get the sense that the Tina that she becomes, the hairstyle that she takes on, the way that she embodies the new outfits she's wearing, the the way that she calls back to her past but is also very current, still mm-hmm. being like a mature older woman, it feels like it is 
mostly for her. It is mostly yeah. to empower her in the image of herself that she can see as an ultimate and not for anyone else. It, and it uh, that even the song Private Dancer and even in her content, you know, it, it is the story of this person. It is not objectified. It is not subjugated. It is entirely, here's my story and here's what I've got to get done. That to me is especially in the 80s at that time, probably very different from a lot of what was going on. I, I mean, I think what you just described was liberation. Yeah. Like this was someone who was a, a, a 100% liberated woman. And I think, you know, she talks about how Buddhism helped her down yes. that route. And and I really like that the documentary does a good job of kind of describing how her being introduced to Buddhism was really the door that pushed her out of the relationship mm. with Ike and into her next phase of life. And I think that's one thing that I, I constantly see is that when Tina's on the go, she's on the go because she has to work, she has to pay bills, she has to take care of her family, all of that. But all of the performance choices that mm -hmm. she's making are all basically set on the image that she wants to put forward. And you're right, because when you see her in the dresses and you see her dancing, it is very hot. Like, mm. it's, like, it's, it's, like it's very hot. Period. But also, there's something that's like, you uniquely not sexual about it at all in some cases because you're sitting and you're looking at someone who just seems like they have full control of themselves of their body mm -hmm. of their actions what they're saying what's coming out of their mouth all of that and i feel like that that is just conveyed so strongly which is why you know i start by saying the tina of the 80s and the 90s is the one who i respect obviously the most yeah. because that is a feat yeah. to be able to have full control of yourself and to portray that image for everyone else to see yeah so i'm born in 90 and so when i become aware of tina she's already reached that level where it was like legend status and what mm -hmm. I remember of her from what I was told by my parents and what I saw on VH1 and MTV when they would cover her was this is a performer that can do anything at any age like what yes. I was told about her was you know she is thighs of steel still performing proud Mary like she did way 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 back you know she'll never stop and in a way even though she has stopped it feels like she hasn't. You know what I mean? And I, I say that not only because, like, you still do imagine, you just imagine her out there. I don't know what, I don't even know how to describe it, but she really does live on in these younger artists. I mean, when you actually see Beyonce and her stage setup and her stage energy and the way that she commands a crowd, you understand what a moment it was, you know, for Beyonce and Tina to perform Proud Mary together those years ago on the Grammys when they did. You understand yeah. that this is someone who is directly influenced. And now to yeah. see Beyonce be acknowledged as the world's greatest living performer, you know, it is there are flowers to be given to Tina directly for this influence, because if it's 30 percent Michael Jackson, it's 70 percent Tina, you know, yeah. in, in terms of what Beyonce is. Yeah, and I think I think that you've like you're going back to my point of saying this is why I feel like there needs to be more Tina appreciation, big time. Because you, if you watch this, I almost want to take the entire Beehive, put them in a stadium, and show them this documentary yeah. and say, okay, go do whatever you're going to do with this. Because the thing is, I know Beyonce would not have a problem thanking Tina Turner. She would not have mm -hmm. a problem saying that there was probably some influence for Tina growing up. Because uh, I believe Beyonce is also an '80s baby. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, with with all of that in want, mind, yeah. it's. 81? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you 9, knew 4, that 8, off the top of your head. Drilled into every Beehive <laughs> member's brain. She, she just celebrated her birthday. Happy birthday, B. 
Happy birthday, B. <laughs> but yeah, I think like, you know, this is someone who grew up with the same Tina that we grew mm-hmm. up with. So I imagine that it definitely uh, had some effect on her as well. And I think, you know, talking about her living through it, I think the fact that they had her voice as archival footage in the in the documentary, yeah, but to see her sitting there and she was sitting, she wasn't like she was moving a lot. But you could almost feel the energy off of her in her responses, in the sharp way that she answers questions, in the ways that she's looking at the camera when she laughs, all of that. The same liberated woman who was like jumping and gyrating through the 80s, 90s, and -hmm. maybe early 2000s. Like, it's the same woman, even though she's sitting there, calm down, like just like chit-chatting with you. You could still feel that palpable energy. So I know exactly what you mean when you say it's like she's still performing. Because in a lot of ways, it really does feel like she still is. Yeah, I also think, you know, know this is this is like a weird tangent but all the archival footage of her like the stuff from her peak like that feels like it like there's that vhs quality to all of it that feels so classic you know what i mean like it's <laughs> yeah, just so yes. like you can see the camera the huge camera they probably had to yes. shoot it on you know what i mean it's just <laughs> yes. it's so classic and like that filter on it is just so i mean it's just this is such a great doc and i mean they they really do collect Obviously, you know, the the recording of her speaking from way, way back, like through the mm-hmm. recording of her with Kurt Loder when he wrote his Itina book with her. Yeah. You know, that audio I thought was really raw because she's talking yeah. about what she's looking for, you know, in a lover and a partner and what she can't find. And yeah. that's another element, too, is like and that actually connects me with my next thought, which is the song What's Love Got to Do With It? Because one of my favorite things about learning about these artists and i find it's common thread is so many of them did not like their biggest song when they first heard it you know what i mean mm-hmm. like and of yep. course and i actually didn't know it was a cover what's love got to do yeah. with it but it that I that sort of wacko uh, swedish pop band was doing it and it sounds completely different and then they give it all those little iconic things like you know the flute the like gorgeous like instrumentation that it has and then you understand really like what they were doing was taking everything off it and giving it just enough to be an interesting track so that her vocal can stand out. And this is another thing. It's like you talk about the performer so much, but just to speak to the vocalist, the vocalist here, I mean, this is that voice that can only belong to one person. And so... I think that what's interesting is the true transition of Tina into the legend is we knew her as the star performer, but there was so much going on. Like with Ike and Tina, there was a machine of sound happening. Whereas like when Tina becomes Tina, if you really listen to everything, it's like, of course, these are like rock bangers in their choruses, like when they really get going. But basically what's happening here is that we take everything away so that Tina can start to tell a story. And she really does tell a story in all of her lyrics. So I can imagine her hearing that track the the pop version of what's love got to do with it and there just being so much shit going on and then when yeah. she's able to work finally with someone that's able to say you know what like you sing it the way you're going to sing it and she clears it out and is able to tell a story what we're seeing is this is not just Tina finding herself as the icon. This is also Tina finding herself as the storyteller. And because yeah. she has such a story to tell, that is when she fully, truly breaks through, is when all the bullshit gets stripped away. Not, not that the music was bullshit, but he, what I'm saying is we give room. We give room for the storyteller. 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, what you're talking about is the, the power of a cover. Too, yeah. You know, like there's, think about how yeah. many songs like we've seen on like TikTok, YouTube of someone covering a song and you're being like, man, I did not, like Cindy Lauper's Time After Time is mm. one of my favorite songs. And every now and then there'll just be some coffee shop singer that'll just sing it on YouTube or yep. something. And you'll just be like, man, they really, like they're, they're really telling the story. Yep. And I think to have that opportunity to do it on like this level, mm-hmm. to have like production quality people all invested in you in mm-hmm. you Tina Turner mm-hmm. and allowing you to kind of do all of the best things that you do it kind of everything you spoke to is kind of it, it echoes back to what Phil Spector was trying to do uh, earlier on with the song that he gave Tina that like didn't quite pan out because he overdid it the you River know Deep I mean? Mountain he overproduced High yeah. the mm-hmm. song and yeah River Deep Mountain High but when you when you pare it all down to what's love got to do with you you're right and the funny thing about that song is if you listen to it right now it is the most one of the most of its era songs Absolutely. that I've ever heard. As soon as it comes on, you're like back in a car with roll down windows. <laughs> you're like, you're yes. like back in the, in the eighties and nineties. You're like there, you're just, Oh, I got to go to the mall. I gotta, I gotta go make a long distance phone call. But I gotta yeah. use a payphone. <laughs> I gotta call know? collect. Yeah. yeah. I, I, where's the beef? I, I literally, yeah, exactly. it's just, it's just so funny though, because that type of music is now back. So, yes. so I, I honestly could see that like, becoming a hit again in some sort of weird yeah. way. You know what's funny yeah. about River Deep Mountain High, too, is, of course, I knew it was a Tina song. I always assumed it was a hit. Years later, talking about covers and, like, songs mm-hmm. being so good, they eventually find their moment. Years later, that's a huge hit for Celine Dion. Really? So, yes. Yes. Oh, oh my wow, God. It was one that. of Celine Dion's oh. big hits, River Deep Mountain High, and she still performs wow. it in her concerts, and it's a moment, and I do believe people think it might be a Celine Dion song, but it wow. was just rearranged and released at a time when, and, and you know, maybe this speaks to the ease of which, um, you know, a white artist can have a song like that and break through with it. I mean, we've seen it happen before maybe. with... Um, the song "If You Asked Me To" I, that was a yeah. Patti LaBelle song, and then Celine Dion released it, and it was a very big hit. And they sing it okay, the same. Okay, take me to school, Matt. Take yeah. me to school. Well, this is—I mean, <laughs> when it comes to the divas of it all, like I, I yeah. actually could be teaching college courses. I might course correct <laughs> at some point. But but it's just so interesting, like to learn that was a cover, and then to understand, like it's just right artist, right time. You know, Dolly Parton writes "I Will Always Love You." It's a hit for her, and then Whitney Houston does it, and. You know, there's also something I to be said about the fact that they take everything off that and it's acapella in the beginning. Sometimes yeah, people just need it. to be given the opportunity to tell a story at the right time. And it, yeah. Tina ter- Tina Turner being so inextricable with her story. And then I think it's that happening in the music where we were able to pull back the noise just a little bit to allow her to tell that. I think yeah. that the musical story speaks to the historic nature of Tina in the same way. And I just think it's really interesting and the documentary actually did speak to that without directly speaking to that yeah it was the perfect ballad for her at that moment yeah because if you think about it if she would have had success immediately after she broke up with ike and moved mm-hmm. on i don't know if we would have gotten the tina that we got today mm-hmm. and it was almost like the perfect set of events led her to the right moment mm-hmm. to get that song to get that record to get you know that uh that manager all of that that kind of like led her into what she was uh at that time in the 80s and 90s but it took a couple of years of her you know kind of toiling away to get to a place where people would take her seriously and give her that opportunity mm-hmm. and you're right that ba- that ballad kind of seems like the culmination of of all of that 
Yeah. And that whole album is bops. I mean, Private Dancer, <laughs> the best, like... I, I yeah. love oh that they God, ended the best. The, they they ended the documentary with the best, and I'm just like, yes, like it's just <laughs> yeah. it's so it's, it's rousing. It's you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and again, it's a simple story, but she's got such an incredible instrument. I also have to say, like, they didn't get into it in into the movie too much. Of course, they they touch on Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, but mm-hmm. she's such a presence, and she actually did yeah. have an impact on film. And she, to me, actually gives one of the best James Bond songs, Goldeneye. If yeah. you haven't listened yeah, yeah, yeah. to Goldeneye recently, try it again, because she is giving you personified sonic Bond girl in yeah. a way, again, where it's just, of course, it's a movie song because the story is being told. I just think people... They don't talk about the vocals enough with her. We talk about the energy and the performance, but what a voice. What a voice. Yeah, I, you're right. Like, now that you're saying it, I can hear it in my mm-hmm. head, and I'm like, that. it's almost, she was perfect for what they were doing. Uh, if you think about Bond films, because you want to go to Bond films, this is going to be a totally different podcast. <laughs> but, but if you think about Bond songs specifically, uh, like, I think, I can think of Adele. I think Sam mm-hmm. uh, Sam Smith, Smith did mm-hmm. one. Uh, Madonna did one of my favorites, which Die I think is probably day, the least. Yes, yeah, that song yeah. is a bop. But, uh, sure. but I think about, they've kind of like started with Sam Smith and with Billy Eilish on the last few, they've kind of gone into more of like a contemplative like sound. Yes. Like they're really like more, they're more like muted. Whereas there, as uh, with Tina, you get like full throat personality and all of that bombast. in the song. Yeah. yeah, bombast. Yes, I'm putting that one in my dictionary. Period. But you get the full bombast of her singing. And I think that's what Bond was. So you're absolutely right. It seems like it'd be the perfect addition. You know what I love is that, again, like, it seems like, and, and I've generally enjoyed all of them, but I enjoy them the most when it feels like lyrically and musically they could speak to whatever the movie is doing. And so Correct. I think these yes. more quiet, contemporary, dark, moody Bond songs that we're seeing is because with Daniel Craig's Bond, we have a very dark, moody, thoughtful. Yeah. Like I saw a tweet recently, which really made me laugh, which was like, 2021 Bond. James, if you can't learn to confront your generational trauma, you'll never learn to truly love. 1962 Bond. Hi, my name is Susan Ass. It's like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, and so like with Shirley Bassey, it's like, he's got a finger of gold. And like, but Tina to me, maybe it's because the the Pierce Brosnan bonds are my favorite. Like Tina giving like that sort of like winky, nudgy, like big throated, but cheeky, like yeah. sort of like version of that to me i just think she needs the credit for yeah for me top three bond songs for me so ronald i have a segment on this podcast called but how is it a queer narrative so basically any film that i watch here i look for ways in which it's a queer narrative and over a techno beat i say how it is so maestro matt dj matt engineer matt can you hit my track please Nuts. Bush. Pride. Specifically, a very proud Mary being covered in sweat and dancing with the girls. Angela Bassett embodying a role. Love, honey, that's got nothing to do with it. A change of hair, that's also a change of era. Switzerland. (laughs) Ultimately, your life is a Broadway show. And thank you, Matt, though, so much. And that is the ways in which (laughs) Tina presents a queer narrative. 
<laughs> Did you find anything that I missed? What, what? How else is this a queer narrative? <laughs> well, what you you basically it basically wrote itself. It felt <laughs> like <laughs> it could be a hit. Uh, I, that, yeah. that might be that might be my single. Yeah, <laughs> like did you everything you named? I'm like, no, yep, 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 that works. <laughs> yep, yep, nope, that works. I mean, I think I mean we, she had sparkly dresses. She certainly did. She was not afraid of a sequin. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Costume changes, which felt like it's reminiscent to ball culture, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know what I loved about Tina, too, is that, like, the choreography was always a little fucked. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it was never perfectly in sync, whereas it seems like now, like, because of, like, I don't know, everyone's ready to criticize at any single moment. Like, everything feels really clean and, like, yeah. nothing's, like, messy anymore. Like, Tina was, yeah. like, sloppy, messy. She was turning, like, a little bit faster than one of her girls and one of her girls yes. was a little bit quicker. And you know what I mean? Yes, it was just or turning the wrong bit, direction. Right. It was a little <laughs> bit makeshift in a way yeah. that it's, like, raw and, like, sweaty but in a physical, literal way and also an actual yeah. way but but good. <laughs> yeah, there was something, you know, it's funny, I, you know, on, on my, uh, my other, I do another podcast called Leaving the Theater, and uh-huh. we watched Elvis recently, oh. and one of my guests on the show mentioned that after watching Elvis, she said, I never understood the hip thing until I watched this movie, mm. and she was like, oh, now I understand the hip thing that everyone's talking about. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt watching Tina gyrate, yeah. and a lot of these portions with her dancers, was, I was like, I don't, I didn't understand it before, but for some reason I'm watching this, and I'm like... Yeah, Tina, keep doing, yeah, keep doing keep, that. Keep That's, that up. I like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this energy. Okay, all of a sudden, it's a very hetero narrative on this podcast. <laughs> That's my bad. <laughs> exactly. And with that, Ronald, where can they find you and where can they listen to you? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok Ooh. at Oh, it's Big Ron. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> at Oh, it's Big Ron. That's at O H I T S B I G R O N. And you can check out my other podcasts where I review movies, TV, and streaming properties, leaving the theater. Uh, you can find out wherever you listen, on any app you're listening to, even the one you're listening to right now. Oh, gosh. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm subscribing to all, and so is all the listeners. Thank you so much, Ronald, for doing this. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. Come back in two weeks when we'll be talking about the original Magic Mike with Mary Beth Barone. That, too, the law says that you cannot touch. But I think I see a lot of lawbreakers up in this house. Be sure to send in your hot takes on this movie and all things Magic Mike to at HBO Max Movies on Twitter and Instagram. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed HBO Max Movie Club, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might get your podcasts. Thanks for joining the HBO Max Movie Club. The movies we talked about today are currently available on HBO Max. Check the show notes for exact streaming dates. HBO Max Movie Club is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Matt Rogers. Our executive producer is Matt Stillo. Our producer is Sierra Kaiser, and today's episode was written and researched by Kate Voss. Thanks, everybody.